The scripture reading this morning is taken from the uh, from 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 24. That's 1 Samuel 30, 24. For who will heed you in this matter? But as his heart is who goes down to the battle, so shall his part be who stays by the supplies. They shall share alike. Two quick things before we study this morning. First of all, I appreciate uh, folks like Eddie who read these passages for us each Sunday. And he tracked me down this morning to make sure that, number one, he had the right passage. When I told him that it was an Old Testament passage, he said, you don't have any of those Old Testament names in there, do you? And I, I assured him that they, we didn't, but uh, great job with the passage, Eddie. Thank you so much. It's also good to see uh, new members, especially our male members, as they began to take part in our, our public worship service. Andrew Davis up here waiting on the table this morning. That's a, that's a joy to see. Glad to see our young men and women as they become such a vital part of this congregation. Folks, that's not just the future of the church. That's the church right now. And we are delighted at having so many and the way that they contribute to the good work here. Someone has said if there's something that no one can do without, it's a mother. That just makes sense logically because none of us would be here this morning if it were not, of course, for our mothers. They went on to write, Dad loves her. Daughters imitate her, sons tolerate her, salesmen stalk her, motorists try to stay out of her way, and grandchildren absolutely adore her. She can be sweeter than sugar, sour as a lemon, crying and laughing all in a two-minute period. She likes the smell of a freshly bathed baby, having parties, homemade ice cream, having her birthday remembered, popcorn in the evenings, church, a new outfit, eating out on Sundays, and grandchildren. She dislikes doing the dishes, having her birthday forgotten, the impatient motorist behind her, the slow motorist in front of her, broken promises, and the neighbor's dog. She can be found standing by, kneeling over, sweeping under, dusting off, stretching around, hanging up, but very rarely ever sitting down. She has the beauty of a spring day, the patience of Job, the memory of an elephant, a heart of gold, and the spirit of a tiger. She brags about you to family and friends, and she loves you no matter what. She believes in you. She remembers your birthdays, and she's always there when you need her. Surely, he ended by saying, a mother is something that no one can do without. And when you've tried her patience and worn her out, she can be won back with four little words, Mom, I love you, because she's a pushover that way. Since today is Mother's Day, and a day that our nation has set aside to honor mothers, I want us to focus on that as we study together this morning because it's not only a matter of national interest, it is also very much a, a biblical subject. One thing that each person in this auditorium has in common is that we all have a mother. That's even a biblical phrase. If you go back to Job chapter 14, verse 1, Job says, Man that is born of woman is a few days and full of trouble. That's just Job saying everybody who has a woman for a mother. You know, that's universal. That gets us all because every one of us has been there. We're in this world because of literally the labor, but also in most cases the, the love of our moms. And many of you are mothers this morning, or some of you are expecting to be moms pretty soon. And mothers are special people to each one of us, but we can only have one mother. 
So what makes a good mother? That's what I want us to focus on for a few minutes this morning. Certainly it requires more than just the biological ability to reproduce. I could list a number of things that would certainly point being, uh, toward being a good mother. And I imagine that if we just went around the room and everybody gave a list, most of those things on our list would be in common. We would all share these as being qualities of a good and a godly mother. Right now, let's look at three moms in the Bible. And I want us to notice one characteristic that was in common with all three of these mothers. So what I'm telling you is basically a warning. There's only one vital takeaway from this lesson this morning, and we will note what that is when we get there. But I want us to focus on three moms, and we want to begin in the Old Testament. In 1 Samuel chapter 1, if you've got your Bible, please turn there. Or whatever device that you might be looking at, look up 1 Samuel chapter 1. And we know, of course, that we're talking about Hannah. And I was tempted to just kind of relate in a narrative form what took place in chapter 5. And I thought, well, it's been a while since we've read this. So let's just read a few verses, and we will get a great insight into the kind of woman that Hannah was, what was most important in her life, what she valued most. Let's begin with verse 5. But to Hannah, he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah, although the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival also provoked her severely to make her miserable because the Lord had closed her womb. And so it was, year after year, so when she went up to the house of the Lord, that she, that she provoked her. Therefore she wept and did not eat. So here's someone giving Hannah a hard time because of her inability to bear children. Then Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Now notice, husbands, that's always a good question to ask. If your wife is crying, it might be thoughtful and insightful to actually say, Hun, what's wrong? Why are you crying? And so that's what Elkanah does. Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart grieved? Am I not better to you than ten sons? Wrong question to ask. And so Hannah arose after they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh. And now Eli the priest was sitting on the, on the seat by the doorpost of the tabernacle of the Lord. And she was in bitterness of soul and prayed to the Lord and wept in anguish. Now here's where I really want us to focus in on what it was that Hannah prayed for. And then she, she made a vow and she said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give me your maidservant or will give your maidservant a male child, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall come upon his head. Before chapter 1 ends, I'm going to kind of boil it down for the interest of time. We have the birth of Samuel being recorded. So God has answered her prayer. She's prayed for a man child. But you might note that before he was born, Hannah had prayed to the Lord that he would give her this man child. She said, Now here's the part of the deal that I promise you I will dedicate him to your service all the days of his life. And the Bible says the Lord heard her petition and she was blessed with the birth of Samuel. Now we could easily end there and say isn't that a wonderful and a heartwarming story and it really is. But please note that the payoff is simply this. Hannah having made that vow before God did not forget about it. When the son was born that she had been praying for, Hannah did not forget her vow. She took Samuel to be trained at the feet of Eli the priest. By the way, this is the first recorded example of Christian education of the Bible. She took him to the right place for religious training. And so here he is learning from the priest Eli. And from a very young age, she made sure 
that he was preparing to serve the Lord. That's the most important act of parenting that Hannah could possibly do for Samuel. We're going to leave that for a moment and then translate that same concept over into the New Testament and look for a moment at Mary. You might want to turn to Luke chapter 2 while we do that. You may remember that Mary was chosen by the Lord to be the mother of Jesus. Now that's a very easy statement for me to make in the pulpit on a beautiful Sunday morning. But there is, that is just loaded with information and loaded with significance. Because we learn by biblical insight why God had chosen Mary for this special position. Certainly that one fact alone speaks volumes regarding, regarding the kind of person that Mary was. Here God is going to come to this world in the flesh. He, he's going to be born just like any other baby was, but it's, it's going to be a, bir a virgin birth. And it's going to be Mary who is privileged and honored to be the mother of the entrance of God into this world. Now, as a parenthetical aside, you may know this already. But in Hebrew history, it was an awful thing for a woman to be barren. That's why part of the reason that Hannah was going through the emotional turmoil that she was going through in the passage that we just read. And, and not only was it a great privilege and honor for women to be able to bear children, that was one reason, but also the second reason why it was especially difficult for a Hebrew woman to realize, hey, I will never be able to biologically give birth to children, was because they wanted to be the one who would give entrance to the Messiah. And so when they were not able to do that, they thought, okay, I'm out of the running. I'll never be able to give birth to to, to, the, to God in the flesh. And, and though we know very little about the childhood of Jesus, Luke 2, I think, provides us some marvelous insight into the life and really into the heart of Mary. And I want us to look at that just for a minute this morning. Near the end of Luke chapter 2, Jesus and his parents, along with others, had been to Jerusalem. By the way, I wish we had a long time to talk about this and, and, and how all of this took place. I've been in Bible classes where people said, now how in the world could you lose your child? And lose him for three days. And there's some reasons behind that that we'll not go into this morning. But the Bible does tell us that as they left Jerusalem, they went a day's journey before Mary and Joseph realized that Jesus wasn't with them. And so they come back. That's the natural reaction. They go back to Jerusalem. And then after three days, Jesus was found, and, and I'm quoting the Bible now, in the temple, sitting in the midst of the doctors, both hearing them and asking them questions. Now, again, that's just chock full of intriguing information. Here they've lost Jesus. They go back, spend three days. Can you imagine what kind of emotional condition that they were in? After day one, after day two, they still haven't found their son. And finally on day three, they find him in the temple. And there he is conversing with those scholarly men just like he was one of them. And, and in verse 49 of this passage, the Bible says, When questioned about his disappearance, Jesus answered to his parents, Why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? Now, here's the most intriguing part, at least in my judgment. Even though they did not understand what he meant by that, the Bible says in verses 50, notice for yourself, verses 50 and 51, that Mary laid these things up in her heart. It's interesting to me, and I think it also typifies motherhood to some degree. I know that I've said some things to my mom that she laid up in her heart, and I had to pay for it later. You know, moms don't forget, by the way. They may not write it down, but it's up there. 
But in this case, even though they did not at that time understand what Jesus meant by that, I must be about my father's business, the Bible says, and I can just imagine, you know, Mary kind of looking toward the sky and laying these things up in her heart. That's important, she's thinking. That's going to mean something. And so I don't want to forget that. At the age of 12, Jesus had great attention focused on spiritual matters. And one of the things that I really want us to appreciate this morning is that that did not happen by accident. He had been raised in such a way by both Mary and Joseph that his interests were naturally inclined in that direction. So he's not off playing his Game Boy or whatever there is, you know. He's he's off in the temple, and he's talking to these scholarly men about spiritual themes. And after this incident, it does not surprise us, toward the end of chapter 2 in verse 52, the Bible says, And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Here's the third mom I want us to talk about for just a moment. You'll find her mentioned in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. If you want to flip over there and read along with me, feel free. It's a woman by the name of Eunice. And this is about the only place that you will find her name, at least this specific woman, mentioned in Scripture. But it's enough, it, it suffices to tell us something about what she also thought was important. And we know that because of her tremendous parenting skills. Paul stated regarding Timothy, and by the way, you, if you're a, a Bible student, you know that Timothy was Paul's son of the gospel, which means that probably he was the one responsible for converting and baptizing him. But we also know that Timothy and Paul always had a very special relationship. Timothy was kind of the protege. Paul was the mentor. And, and so they had that, that unique and powerful relationship as two brothers in Christ would. And then when Paul is writing his second letter, and isn't it appropriate that the last letter that Paul would ever, he's the most prolific author of the New Testament, having written 13 or 14 of the books that we have in our New Testaments, and the very last one he writes is going to be his son in the gospel. And he knows that he's about to die, and he's talking about very important things. And when he gets to verse 5 of chapter 1, the opening chapter of his second letter, he says this, And this is not atypical of Paul's writings because usually he likes to write some things that are a commendation upon the congregation or the person that he's writing the letter to. You might remember that even to Corinth, as messed up as the Corinthian congregation was, Paul started by complimenting them on their strengths. But here he's writing about Timothy. And he can't can't mention the faith of Timothy without also, also mentioning his mama and his grandmother. Watch what happens in the passage. When I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded in you also. I'm just saying that that's a simple verse. But it ought to warm the hearts of every grandmother and every mother in this audience. If you are interested in the spiritual raising, the spiritual training, the spiritual guidance and the spiritual direction of your children or your grandchildren, you are in good company. And don't think that just because your kiddos are grown and gone that they can no longer be influenced by the power of your spiritual guidance. Grandmothers have a tremendous power and influence over the grandkids and great-grandmothers as well. But here Paul is acknowledging the important place Timothy's grandmother and mother both had that sincere faith that was now evident in Timothy's life. And Paul said, you know, basically implying, I just can't write this letter without acknowledging that. 
It's kind of like a, the story, quick story, by the way, that I heard about a class of six-year-olds in, 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 in church one day. They were talking about this kind of faith and how that we need to grow up to w- always want to be faithful disciples. And, and so the teacher was going around the room, and she asked one little six-year-old boy, she said, now, now why do you have faith? And he said, as he thought about it, I, I'm, not, I'm not real sure. I think it just runs in my family. And, and that's a wonderful response, isn't it? Because Timothy could have answered the same way. It runs in my family. I mean, if you want to know why I have any faith at all, you look at mama and you look at grandmother. No doubt much time was spent teaching him God's word. We know that because two chapters later, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. Now, almost everybody's familiar with verses 16 and 17. All scriptures inspired of God is profitable for. You know those passages. But verse 15 that begins that thought reads like this. And from a child, that is, some versions say, from childhood, you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise unto salvation. How did Timothy get that? Because he had a godly mother, and he had a godly grandmother, and they made sure that Timothy, in all likelihood, his father was not a man of faith. That's at least the speculation by most scholars. And so mom and grandmother were the ones who were the instruments of God to teach this young man how he needed to walk in the ways of the Lord. And that kind of faith that's passed down from one generation to the next does not happen accidentally. I have often said from this pulpit and other pulpits that faith is not genetic. We do not pass it down in our genes and our chromosomes, but it is or at least should be generational. That is, we ought to pass it down to the next generation. And I'm going to end this lesson in just a moment by looking at Deuteronomy chapter 6 where we will verify that biblically. But here are three mothers who had at least one thing in common. And here's the takeaway from this lesson this morning. Their dedication and their obedience to the Lord was in turn instilled in their children. I think as easy as that is for me to articulate, it is a powerful concept if we could just wrap our brains around it. Children will not accidentally be brought up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. And Paul said dads have a central place in that guidance and training as well, Ephesians chapter 6 verse 4, but we'll save that for daddy's day. But right now we're talking about moms. Children will not accidentally be brought up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. They need to be brought, not sent, to every service of the church. They need exposure. Moms, listen to me. They need exposure to the Bible, to the reading and the study of God's Word at some level every day of their lives. They need to learn how to pray. They need to hear you pray so that they know how to pray and communicate with God themselves. They need to have their spiritual training the most important activity of their lives. It is vitally important that we understand that that become a, a, a constant place, a perpetual reminder every day as, as they're growing up at, at our knee. Joe Goodspeed wrote an article called Staying with the Baggage that I shared with you before, but it's been nine years, so I'm going to run the risk of sharing it with you again, and it's the title of today's lesson, and here's why. Joe writes, a few years ago, a lovely Christian mother gave me a criticism I deserved. I preached a strong sermon on personal evangelism, pointing out every Christian's obligation to reach out and win others to the Lord. And in the conclusion of the sermon, I tried to obliterate every every excuse that anyone might have for failure to lead others to Christ. The sermon needed to be preached, of course, and it still does. Only, apparently, I had been guilty 
of some unfair emphasis. After the sermon, I was invited home with a lovely Christian family. The husband was completing his resident work as a medical doctor, had little spare time, but still, I might add, spent some of his time in our personal evangelism program. The wife beautifully cared for their three lovely children, all of them very young, one still an infant in arms, and that, of course, required a lot of time. During the meal, the wife asked if I remember the scripture that reads, For as his share is who goes down into battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 24, of course. I confess my ignorance. And she gave the context of King David insisting that the home guard be rewarded equally with those who had the more obviously essential role of fighting on the front line. And then she shared a wonderful truth with me that I'm sure I'd already known, but which, which is so easily forgotten. She mentioned that she felt that taking care of her children, patiently teaching them the ways of God and his great values, looking for moments of readiness to gently retract them when they got on the wrong track, she felt like that was staying with the baggage. And she went on to point out that she often felt guilty for not doing more church work than she did, but that she felt that her greatest ministry at that point in her life was being a dedicated Christian mother. And Joe ends the article by saying, My friend, all you need to say after listening to a needed reprimand like that is one word, Amen. That's exactly right. God recognizes the value of every part that we play, and especially as we're trying to raise our children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. You know, the importance of raising our children cannot be overestimated, especially mothers who accept this awesome responsibility need to appreciate that what you are doing is, in reality, kingdom work. And so if you're heard to say, I can't wait till the children get grown so I can get back to doing kingdom work, please know that what you're doing right now is kingdom work. In fact, let me take that one step farther. What you're doing as a Christian mom is as important as preaching a sermon. In fact, in some ways, it's even more important than the ability to stand in a pulpit and, and present a lesson like this one. Because if mothers and fathers did their jobs, preachers would be out of work. And what a wonderful day that would be. Said another way, an ounce of mother is worth a pound of preacher. Now please realize as well that this stage in your lives is fleeting. I realize that when you have small children in the house, which I have often likened to having a blender with no lid on it, you know what that's like, that you think that those days will never end, but you're wrong about that. Moms and dads, when you have small children, the days are long, but the years are short, and that time is fleeting, and it won't be long till your options will be broadened, and you'll be able to get back into other aspects of kingdom work. But I, I wanted to communicate to you, and I just felt like you needed to hear that, that you're doing kingdom work. You're doing the most important thing that God could have anyone on this planet to do as you're determined to raise your children in the nurture and the training of the Lord. And you're trying to instill his values within you. And I guarantee you, every, every conscientious mom knows Proverbs 22.6, train up a child in the way that he should go. When he's old, he will not depart from it. 
Before we end, allow me to use another simple illustration. Brother Cecil gave me this when I preached it nine years ago. He said, you might want to use this illustration, and I think it's very appropriate, and I want to end with this. The illustration says that during the dark days of World War II, England had a great difficulty keeping men in the coal mines. And that's because it was a thankless kind of job lacking in any glory. And most chose instead to join the various military branches and to render their service that way. They wanted something that would give them more social acceptance and more recognition. And being in a coal mine was not the way to get it. Something was needed to motivate these men and the work that they were doing so that they would remain in the mines where they were most needed. After all, it was coal that not only fueled the nation but fueled the war effort. And with this in mind, Winston Churchill, the man at the top, delivered a speech one day to thousands of coal miners, stressing to them the importance of their work in the war effort. And he did this by painting them a mental picture. And he told them to picture the grand parade that would take place when VE Day came and the war had ended. And then he said the sailors of the British Navy would come, the ones who would upheld the great tradition of Trafalgar and, and the defeat of the Armada. And then he said, next in the parade, the pilots of the Royal Air Force would come, and they were the ones more than any other who had saved England from the dreaded German warplanes. Next in the parade would come the army, the ones who had stood tall at the crisis of Dunkirk. And last of all, he said, a long line of sweat-stained, suet-streaked men in miners' caps would bring up the rear of the parade. And someone, Churchill predicted, would cry from the crowd, where were you during the critical days of this struggle? And then from 10,000 throats would come, we were deep in the earth with our faces to the coal. We were told that there were tears in the eyes of many of those suit-laden and weather-faced coal miners that had been given a sense of their own worth by the man at the top. The point is... And the point that I want us to understand today is that service does not always come with a big fancy ribbon on top. I think that is always going to be true. That's often the, the humblest act of service that provides us the deepest sense of joy and the most intense satisfaction. And I ask you mothers to remember that the next time you get thrown up on and the next time you change a dirty diaper. And the next time you tuck that precious child in bed, what you're doing is so important. Now, the Deuteronomy 6 passage reference that I wanted us to appreciate before we quit is one that I have always considered to be of great value. In fact, from time to time, people have asked me, is there any one place in Scripture that I can go to and that can help me to appreciate how important it is to involve myself in the proper parenting skills, Deuteronomy chapter 6 is it. You'll find seven principles in Deuteronomy chapter 6 that we don't have time to go through today. But if you'll find in the opening verses of chapter 6, here's something that Moses says in the introduction of that treatment. He says, And the word and the will of God that you shall pass to your children shall first, watch this carefully, be in your own hearts. And then you'll be able to communicate it to your children. I'm paraphrasing, but that's the thought of the passage. First of all, it has to be in your heart. You cannot pass it down to the next generation. If the word and the will of God is not of paramount importance in your own heart. So when we sing the song of invitation this morning, I'm asking you, if you want your home to be a thoroughly Christian home, everybody going in the same direction spiritually, 
It starts with you, with the moms and the dads making sure that you're walking the way that God would have you to walk. And if you've not yet made that initial commitment to become a New Testament Christian through your faith, sincere repentance, confession of Jesus as God's Son, and being immersed in water to have his blood wash all your sins away, why not make your home a thoroughly Christian home this morning by obeying the gospel and then begin to teach, teach and train those children in the ways and the will of God. And do it now while we stand and while we sing.